All right, so Travis, a couple weeks ago in his benediction, my name's Jordan, by the way, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here and a church planning candidate, uh, but Travis, a couple weeks ago in his benediction, gave like a Marvel movie analogy, which I didn't even know you could do that. So sticking with the theme, we're starting out today with a, oh my goodness, huh. I did not see that coming. All right, there we go. I'm trying to pull it higher. Yep. All right. We're good. This is a weird start to the sermon. Let's acknowledge it. Move on. Okay. Marvel movie quote. We're, we're starting out today with a Spider-Man quote, all right? With great power comes great responsibility. So Spider-Man had had a status change, okay? He went from a normal dude to, well, Spider-Man, okay? Status change. And with that status change came a change in power and therefore the expectations on how he would live, on his responsibility. There is a status and a power in the average Christian, the quote-unquote average Christian, that is categorically more significant than any of us realize. So much so that Paul casually drops in our text this morning that one day we will rule the world. Did you catch that as Sean was reading? We're going to circle back to that, but he just drops it in there and moves on. But that's the status of a Christian. And with that status change comes the great responsibility and privilege of a transformed life. We as Christians have a message of forgiveness, which people desperately need. But I wonder if the world is seeing something in Christianity and in Christians that actually works. Is our message simply that you don't have to be punished for the things that you continue to do as you continue to live a life that's equally as destructive as it was before? Or do we have a message that can holistically transform you, that can heal you and make you more fully human in Jesus Christ? Do we have a way of life that is worth offering the world? Yes, forgiveness, but also transformation. Because I think the world desperately is looking for a way of life that actually works, that can transform you, not just theoretically, but practically. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is going to be addressing a variety of problems within the Corinthian church. Ways that they were not living up to the status of being a Christian. And his primary diagnosis of these problems is that they've forgotten who they already are. They forgot their status and therefore they forgot how to live. So let's look at two main problems within the Corinthian church, problems that I think apply to us today, and then look at the status solutions that Paul offers to the Corinthians. So problem number one is disunity and public bickering. Disunity and public bickering. You heard in the text that was read that the Corinthians were taking each other to court. The, the church was suing one another, and Paul is looking at them and saying, that is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you ever do that as a Christian? Now, I don't think here that this is a prohibition against absolutely all lawsuits, in particular criminal lawsuits. 
You have things like in Romans 13 where Paul talks about how the government is responsible for wielding the sword against wrongdoing and against criminals. So I think there's some leeway for things like criminal lawsuits. But what he's talking about here specifically in 1 Corinthians 6 is these petty little fights about things like property and money and contract disputes. And so the Corinthians were bickering with one another and their solution was to take their brothers and sisters in Christ to court. And Paul is saying that that is a ridiculous solution. And he gives two problems with these lawsuits in Corinth. The first one was that they were demonstrating their disunity in the church publicly and that it was a bad testimony to non-Christians. Look at verse 6, if you're following along with us. Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. He's saying, you're, you're Christians. You have this message that has united you in Christ, where the distinctions and boundary lines that used to separate you as people are no longer existing at the foot of the cross, and you're proclaiming this message about how you can be unified in Christ, but then what your life is displaying to the world is that you're disunified. And so instead of solving your problems in-house, you're dragging each other before unbelievers and publicly demonstrating the disunity that's happening within your church, and it's not good. The second problem with these lawsuits was that they had totally forgotten the heartbeat of Christianity. Something that I think we have forgotten at times too. Look at verses seven and eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So he's looking at them and saying, okay, yeah, you've been wronged by some of the other Christians in the church. Yeah, there's something wrong that happened. But he's saying your solution for that wrong is antithetical to the heart of Christianity. And he's saying here's what a Christian does when they're wronged by someone. They love in return. He's saying your solution to this problem to gain justice for yourself, to establish that you were right, by creating public disunity is worse than the problem that happened against you, than the injustice that was committed against you. Why not rather be defrauded by your brother but respond in love the way that a true Christian does? This is what Jesus was talking about when he said to turn the other cheek. When he said if someone tries to take your shirt, give him your coat as well. Because the Christian moral ethic is different than what is typically assumed true morality is. So typically we would think that what it means to be a moral person is to be someone who is relatively kind to other people. Somebody who in general doesn't hurt or infringe on the rights of other people. But if somebody steps on your rights, that you then have the right to defend them. That's typically how we think about morality. But that is not Christian morality. Normal Christian living, not extraordinary Christian living, not super Christians, just ordinary Christian living is self-giving, self-sacrificing, others-oriented love at great cost to yourself. 
including when people trample on your rights. Because the heartbeat of Christianity is love. And love is often costly. We all like the idea of love in theory, but in practicality, it gets more difficult because it will cost you something. But at the end of the day, it's a beautiful life, a life worthy of living. And the reason we live like that is because it's the path that Jesus laid out for us. He went first and then said, follow me. See, Jesus interacted with human beings. He interacted with me and you on terms of grace, not retribution. He organized salvation. His plan of salvation since before the foundations of the world was that he would come to earth and be defrauded by human beings so that he could give them heaven. His plan was that everything would be taken from him so that he could give everything to you. His plan was that he would be falsely accused. The innocent one accused by people who were guilty and his plan was that he would take that false accusation upon himself so that you could be set free. His methodology and his plan of interacting with human beings was of grace and of self-sacrificial, others-oriented love. And we follow his example. But instead of giving up their rights for the benefit of someone else, the Corinthians were demanding their rights to the detriment of someone else which is still the moral instinct of our time. And I think the moral instinct for a lot of us, that thing happens in you when you're wrong, when something inside of you starts clamoring to prove that you were right. And that thing in you, more often than not, is flesh. More often than not will lead to increased destruction, not towards love and unity. And in the Corinthian church, that thing inside of them was causing bickering. And so Paul offers them a solution. And the solution he gives them is their status. Here's solution number one for problem number one. The wisdom and the power of every Christian. Just normal Christians. Look at verse two. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So as I've been talking about this text with people this week, I like to talk about just what's on my mind. And as I've read this text a couple times to a few different people. When I read verse three, people freak out a little bit. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? And there's typically some sort of little laugh or like confused response at that. And so that, that is a deeply odd thing for us. As we come across that, my guess is for the majority of us, we have no idea what that means. Now here's what you can do with the Bible when you have no idea what it means, as you can just be like, this is weird and move on. Which honestly, honestly guys, is a lot of our strategy right? Like you read something like that, you power through it, you get to stuff that you understand. But I want to encourage you to adopt a little bit different strategy as you read the Bible and to start to believe that maybe 
When there's something that is odd or confusing to you in Scripture, it's because the Bible is introducing you to a world that you maybe don't fully understand yet, but is the definition of reality. And maybe it wants to teach you something about life in this world and in the next that is absolutely beautiful. If you just blow through stuff like that, you're going to miss riches in this text. And so let's take a look at what this means. What does it mean in those statements that we will judge the world and we will judge angels? Okay, well, the word judge there could mean a couple different things. So let me explain to you a couple different options of what that word could mean. The, the first thing that it could mean is what you typically think when you hear the word judge. It means to bring an assessment to something, to evaluate or to give a verdict, to stand before someone or something and say, this is right and this is wrong. Now, if that's the way that Paul is using it here, it would essentially mean that we are going to be involved with the sentencing trials of fallen angels and fallen people at the end of all things. That we will sit with Christ on thrones of our own as he's judging the world and saying who was right and who was wrong. Now the word judge can also mean something related but, but slightly different. It can mean to rule or to reign. Now if Paul is using it in that sense, it would mean that in the new heavens and in the new earth, Christians will rule and or govern the resurrected new heavens and new earth. It would mean that you will one day rule and reign over heaven. Now, whether or not that's specifically what he means here, that is true. We have Bible on that. That's your destiny. Luke 22 talks about that. Revelation 20, Revelation 22, all talk about how Christians are going to rule over the new heavens and the new earth. To be kings and queens over our hope. Now, why would you rule over the new heavens and the new earth? Well, one of the reasons is because Romans 8 says that you, all of you here that have trusted in Jesus, you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. What is an heir? You receive everything that the Father has. You are a co-heir with Jesus, not a sub-heir, a co-heir, which means that you will inherit everything that Jesus inherits from the Father. Question, what does Jesus inherit from the Father? Literally everything. All of creation is his. And because you are a co-heir with Christ, it will mean that all of creation will be yours. God wants to give you as a Christian everything good in the universe. Heaven is the methodology by which you inherit the world. It's the mechanism that God designed to give you everything good. That is your status. And because the new heavens and the new earth will be yours, you will rule over them the same way that a king rules over a kingdom. You will own that place in Christ. That is your standing. That is your status in Christ. And so regardless of what he means here by judge, whether he means that you will judge kind of fallen angels or whether you will rule over the new heavens and the new earth, it means that you have an unbelievable status, that there is no such thing as a quote-unquote average Christian. But your status is that you are in Christ and you are above everything else in creation. You will have the wisdom and the power and the justice and the love 
of Jesus Christ. And angels one day will ask you for permission to do things. Like angels, guys. Angels are not like the things that you see in art, the little babies with the harps. Angels are these magnificent supernatural beings that every time a human being encounters them in scripture, they fall on their face in fear and think they're gonna die. One day, we in some senses will rule over angels. That is how significant and weighty you are as a human being in Jesus Christ. So we're gonna come back to in a second how that relates to these lawsuits that the Corinthians were having. But let me just give you a little, a little side application here to this truth that I think is related. If it's true that Christians really are this wise and this powerful, then how you live and how you understand God's will for your life, for a lot of you, that's a big question. You're asking yourself, what does God want me to do? Where does he want me to live? How does he want me to live? What career does he want me to have? All of this stuff. You're asking these questions about God's will for your life. Then those things, those decisions in your life, what you do with your money, how you spend your time, where and how you live, the quote unquote average Christian, your community should play a significant role in deciding those things, in deciding how you live. The woman sitting next to you in connection group should be one of the primary influencers in how you live your life. Likely more so than your family, than your politics, than other social institutions. Because that person sitting next to you in connection group will one day rule the world. (laughs) They have wisdom in Christ by his spirit. And so part of what it means to be a Christian is to submit your life to the church. Now by the church here, I don't primarily mean church institution. I mean the Christians around you, the people around you. Let those people speak into your life. I remember there was this time in my life that I was just frustrated with what was going on in my life and frustrated with how people were were responding to my ministry. And I was talking to a friend about it. And this friend of mine said, hey, Jordan, you you believe that God works for your good in all things, right? (laughs) I was like, I mean, yeah, yeah, like, that's a Christian thing, that's a Bible thing, I'm a pastor. Yeah, like I I believe that. And then my friend just went, well, then shouldn't all the things you're complaining about, shouldn't you just be thankful for those things? Shouldn't you just thank God instead of complaining? I was like, oh, like, ouch. Uh, But that changed my entire perspective on what was going on in life. And it really categorically changed like how I was living in that moment. A friend of mine, a quote-unquote average Christian, God was speaking through them by his spirit. And it changed me. That's what average Christians can be like. Now, let's kind of come back to it. What does the fact that we will one day rule the world with Christ have to do with these lawsuits in Corinth? Why does Paul just drop that in and then keep talking about these lawsuits? Well, I think his logic is that if your status and your power is high enough to one day judge angels, then you can handle these little disputes in the church. This this little bickering here and there, you guys are more than qualified in Christ to be able to settle those things and come back to unity in the church. And so Paul, as he's saying this to them, I think that his tone is... It's almost sarcastic. 
Like, I think he is, is lovingly mocking them a little bit here by saying, are you kidding me? You can't solve this on your own? Like, do you not know who you are? Let me, let me do just a little bit of the same, okay? Just, just lovingly. Guys, some of you, you've trusted in Jesus, which means that you are the bride of Christ. Jesus wants to connect himself to you for all of eternity. And those of you that are married, you stood before God and you made vows before him that you would demonstrate that unconditional love through the unconditional love that you give to your spouse. And you're thinking about divorcing them because you have some arguments. Like like you're thinking about leaving because you're not as giddy when you see them walk in the room as you used to be. You don't feel as many things that you used to feel. You're a Christian. No way. Some of you have mistrust and bitterness towards people in your life. Some of you towards believers. People who Jesus Christ died for and ransomed. That is their status. And you're holding their sins against them even though Jesus hasn't held your sins against you because they've hurt your feelings. Because they did something that you didn't appreciate or that you disagreed with or, or you have a little bit of disunity between some other Christians in your life because they have marginally different theology than you or gasp because their politics are different than you. Like, come on, have we lost our collective minds? We're Christians. That stuff can't create disunity among us. We have Jesus Christ. He's redeemed us together to be his bride forever. Those little things don't have to separate us anymore. We're unified in him. All right, problem number two, lack of holiness in the church. Lack of holiness in the church. Look at verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So let me simply go through this list, no commentary, but just explain what these words mean. Okay, sexually immoral. A person who is sexually immoral is someone who has indulged any sexual thought or action towards someone who is not your husband or wife. An idolater is people who worship and love something more than they love the one true God. And and by the way, that's not just kind of an ancient sin where they used to worship physical idols. That's true of us. If there's anything that you love ultimately or trust ultimately more than you trust God himself. Maybe for you it's money or it's success or it's career or it's family or even if it's religion, being a good person, trying to stand on your own goodness. Adulterers, um, we, we know the definition there. Jesus expanded that definition in the Sermon on the Mount to include Uh, anyone who is committing adultery in their minds as well because God sees that and he knows the heart. Men who practice homosexuality, 
Uh, right here he mentions men, but we know from Romans 1 that it also includes women. Um, it's any person with a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. Then he lists thieves, people who are greedy and drunkards. We know the definition of all those terms. I just want to point out greedy. Might that be a, a blind spot for us culturally? Um, we're one of the most blessed nations in the, the history of the world, one of the richest group of people in the history of the world. Uh, I, I've heard people in humility confess a lot of sins over the years. I can count on one hand the number of times people have confessed greed. Maybe that's not because none of us are struggling with it, but maybe it's because we don't really see it as being that significant, but it's in this list with some of these other sins that maybe some would consider more severe or more significant. Revilers, this is like mockers or even abusers, people who are abusive. Swindlers, uh, this is people who are dishonest or trying to extort people out of something. Now, I just want to acknowledge Paul is not pulling any punches here. Like he's being very raw and blunt with the truth. But I think that's actually an incredibly loving thing to do. I don't know about you, but I'm actually really thankful when someone just speaks straight to me and tells me what's true. And sometimes it's difficult to know what's true in the world and everything seems kind of fuzzy or it's hard to, to come to grips with what is right and what's wrong, what's true. Paul here is just giving us clarity on that, I think, in love. But let's acknowledge what's at stake when he talks about not living into these things. What's at stake if you choose to engage in a lifestyle towards these things is verse 9 and 10, where he says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If these sins are your way of life, you will not be in heaven. Now, does that mean that these are unforgivable sins? No, absolutely not. We know that because scripture repeatedly talks about the grace of God for even the worst sinners. We know that because there's plenty of examples in scripture of people who have committed these sins but have been people of God. David, for example, who was a, a murderer and an adulterer, but was considered a man after God's own heart. So it does not mean that these are unforgivable sins, but we also can't move on too quickly because Paul intended this as a warning. He's saying that if your settled disposition of your life is towards a pathway away from God and into sin and not towards God, that that pathway will kill your soul for Jesus and will end in an eternity separated from God. And so when I was trying to think about an example of this, I actually was thinking about what it means to be a student in college. So my sophomore year of school, I started with two roommates in like a three-person dorm room. It was pretty awesome. We had our own bathroom, like two different uh, rooms, stuff like that, a little living room. It was, it was big time for dorm standards. Um, but I had two roommates. By the end of the semester, I had zero other roommates. And I lived it up. Honestly, it was pretty great. I had a lot of space to myself. Here's how that happens, though. One of my roommates got married, and the other roommate, even though he was really smart, got kicked out of school because he just stopped going to class and stopped turning in assignments. 
And so he was on academic probation and then got kicked out of school. Now question, do you get kicked out of college if you miss a question on a test? No. Do you get kicked out of college if you get a B? No. Do you get kicked out of college if you get an F in a class? No, there's maybe consequences for that, but you're not removed from college. However, if you go so far away from what it means to be a student that you're not actually even studying anymore, you're not actually even living into the definition of a student, the university will come to you at some point and will say, hey, we see that you're not living as a student, and so we're actually just going to clarify that and say, you no longer are a student at this university. So in order to be a college student, the primary thing is that you need to be accepted into that university. But once you're accepted into the university, you need to actually live as a student. Of course, it doesn't mean you need to live perfectly, but you actually need to live out the lifestyle as a student. Now, in Christianity, if you screw up, are you going to get kicked out of the kingdom of God? No, of course not. In Christianity, if you fail epically, are you necessarily getting kicked out of the kingdom of God? No, of course not. All of us have had moments in our lives where we've fallen further than we ever thought imaginable, and Jesus responds to you if you come to him in repentance and faith with absolutely stunning grace. But within Christianity, if you begin to stop living as a Christian at all, if, if your lifestyle is completely contrary to the things that it means to follow Christ, then are you a Christian? No, you're not. But listen to the solution that Paul gives. Solution number two is that you were washed and cleansed by God. You were washed and cleansed by God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So sanctified here, maybe some of you have heard the word sanctified before, used in what's theologically known as progressive sanctification, meaning that throughout your life, you become more and more like Jesus in practice. That's not how the term is being used here. It's being used as positional sanctification. So here's what that means, is that you, when Jesus saved you, were set apart for holy use. You were consecrated, you were made clean and holy. So those words sanctified, washed, justified here, they're functioning the same way. It means that God looks at you and he says, instead of seeing your sin, he sees the glory and the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he sets you apart as dignified, as sanctified, as holy. Now, a lot of you, when you enter into sin, you respond to that sin in shame. Which shame is essentially telling yourself that this is who you are. So you use your body in a degrading way and so you conclude that you are a degraded person. And here's what you will need for shame. Shame is painful and so you will need a solution. And for a lot of us, our temptation when we're sitting in shame is to go to sin again to try to relieve it. You're sitting in shame, and so you look for relief from the pain of shame, and you cycle further down in sin. But Paul here is offering you a different solution. 
in its status. It's your standing in Jesus Christ. Paul is doing the opposite of shame. He's not saying shame on you, that's who you are. He's doing the opposite. He's saying that's not who you are. You've been redeemed, you've been made holy, you're a child of God. And so in sin, you had an identity crisis where you started to live like someone you're not. You forgot who you are, but God comes alongside of you and says, no, you're my holy one. You're holy in Jesus, you're mine. You're set aside for my use, for my holy purposes. Remember who you are. And so church, re-engage in the pursuit of holiness because you are holy in Christ. Sin is not true of you. It's not who you are. You are holy in Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You were set aside for holy use in Christ. And so here's what that means. That holiness, that identity begins to flesh itself out in the practicalities of your living. So a Christian puts blockers on their computer so that they can't access inappropriate content and they confess their sin to brothers and sisters in Christ, not because they're living in shame, but as a way of saying, this is what I did, but it's not who I am. I'm holy in Christ. A Christian makes radical decisions in their dating relationship to treat the person that they're dating as a son or daughter of the king because a Christian is pure. That's who they are in Christ. A Christian identifies the things that they love more than God, the things that they're worshiping instead of him. And they pursue love and joy in Jesus Christ so that their heart would be won over to God and not to those things. A Christian honors their spouse and is a one woman man or a one man woman where all you want is the spouse that God gave you and they become your definition of beauty. A Christian does not indulge in sexual desires contrary to the design of God, but courageously embraces self-control, understanding that their sexuality does not define them, but their love for Jesus does. A Christian would rather give away all of their money than let it devour their heart and their mind. A Christian is holy not only in status, but in identity and in practice. Why? Because the King of kings and Lord of lords has washed you. He stooped down to wash your feet, to make you clean. And not only that, but what verse 11 tells us is that you have the spirit of God living in you to help you live out your holiness. The spirit of God who hovered over the waters before the foundations of the earth. The spirit of God who rolled away the stone and resurrected our hope. The spirit who came down in fire on the temple of Solomon and then fire on the new temple of the people of God at Pentecost, that very spirit who is the presence and power of Jesus Christ lives in you and is teaching you how to live in him. And he's not fighting with you because of your sin. He's fighting for you against your sin. He's fighting alongside of you as you fight against your sin to be holy. The spirit that resurrected Jesus is resurrecting you. And so Christian, become who you are. I remember growing up, my dad and my, my grandpa clarifying for me over and over again what it means to be an Adams. So I remember this one time at a football game, everybody was booing. I was young. I didn't even know what was going on, but I started booing. And my dad got down next to me and he said, Jordan, Adamses don't boo. It's not what we do. And I remembered that. I remember another time I pushed my sister and it's the only time I've ever seen my grandpa mad. 
And he got in my face and sternly said, Adamses don't push people. It's not what we do. And they defined for me what it meant to be an Adams, where it felt like our name meant something. And I didn't feel condemned by that. I felt invited into living into an identity that I was proud of and that I knew was weighty and significant. That's what's true of you as a Christian. You are a little Christ and you are invited into the stunning identity that is Jesus Christ himself. Live into that identity. It's a life worth living. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for calling us to a new identity. God, we confess our sin. We confess, I confess, that that list in 1 Corinthians 6 is at times true of me, it's true of us. And we come to you and we ask you to make us clean, to wash us so that we can live holy lives in you. God, we don't want to just talk about Christianity. We want to be different. We want better lives in you. So empower us, Lord, to do what we can't do without you. Forgive us of our own of our unrighteousness and let us live holy lives in you by your grace, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.